Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Sachin Shridharani, one of the USA's leading plastic surgeons. Based in Manhattan, New York, he founded his clinic Luck Surgery, where he blends cutting-edge cosmetic surgery with elite non-surgical aesthetics. He's a globally respected key opinion leader and has lectured in over 20 countries. Dr. Shridharani has also become the world's leading authority on the use of Kybella, a fat-dissolving injectable product that's also branded as Belkyra in Australia and the rest of the international market. Dr. Shridharani has unparalleled experience in using Belkyra, having performed over 4,000 treatments and counting. He has extensive experience in the complete range of on- and off-label indications for fat dissolving and has published several of his own unique protocols, including treating the jowl fat and the lateral margins of the neck. Hello, Satch. How are you, mate? How's New York and how's post-COVID lockdown life? Well, great to hear from you um, and fun to be on this podcast. Things are well. Um, New York obviously was at the epicenter of you know, ground zero, so to speak, of so many things that were happening in the United States during COVID. Um, it was really concerning, scary throughout that time period. Never really seen New York City or really um, anything like this in our lives. Hopefully we never will again. But um, coming out of COVID, the staff, the team, family, friends have all remained healthy, fortunately, and we are back to work in full capacity. So it's been incredible amount of volume and busy, nothing that one would have ever expected coming out of a pandemic. But nonetheless, uh, we are back at it and New York is great and just working away. So what sort of um, social distancing rules do you guys still have in place at the moment over there? A lot. So you're talking uh, from yeah. the office perspective or just in general out oh, in the city? Just in general, there may be you know, any sort of protocols that you've had to put in place sure. to sort of... Uh, conform with the, the new world in which we live? <laughs> so many, uh, first of yeah. all. So when you think about it just from the lens of over 8 million people that live in a very small uh, surrounding area, meaning New York City comprising the boroughs, there's been a lot. I live and work in Manhattan, a few blocks away from each other mm -hmm. as my residence and my home around Fifth Avenue. So first of all, there's no in um, restaurant dining, things like that. Everything has to be outdoors. Wow. So that's concerning going into the fall and the winter because obviously that <laughs> yeah. industry is taking a huge hit. So the yeah. thought of only having a few months of limited sidewalks yeah. to sustain an entire yeah. industry that works on margin is of course concerning. But you know, in the city, it's everyone's in masks. People have to social yeah. distance. Subways have to be you know constantly um, sterilized, which. I'm, unfortunately, it took a pandemic to do that. New York City subways yeah. could have been sterilized a long time ago. Yeah, we could have benefited from that. Uh, but basically, yeah. you know, it's more of what we've seen everywhere else. In the office, yeah. there's a lot um, of different elements. Mm -hmm. You know, the way that we schedule patients, the turndown that's expected in each room afterwards to keep people safe. Protocols when people come into the office, as far as temperature checks, making sure that they're asymptomatic prior to even coming in. 
Um, what's impacted us on a surgical side is patients have to have a negative COVID PCR test less than five days out from undergoing an elective surgical procedure. So with the shortage of tests that was ongoing for a while and the turnaround time, you've got people that are scheduled for surgery, test doesn't come in, and now you have to cancel their case the day before the morning of, heavily disruptive to the schedule, patients are upset, you got to keep people safe, but there's so many different elements that's led to disruption and having to navigate that one would never have expected a few weeks or a few months ago, right? This has all happened over yeah. the last several months. Yeah, I was when I was when I was laughing before when you were talking about uh, sort of restaurants. I was thinking I always had this mental image of people being rugged up with like a thousand layers and beanies in the middle of winter, trying to eat outside. We're just because Manhattan gets so cold, yeah. and it's such a densely populated community of people. Like it just, I mean, I guess Los Angeles might be slightly different because it's a lot more spread out. But Manhattan, I mean, you're just all basically on top of each other, and the winters there are just. <laughs> they're unforgiving would be really difficult, really difficult. Yeah. It's going to be something that they're really, you know, figuring out how to navigate and concerned about all the space heaters in the world can't control for snow or the wind or all that cold. So yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, most, I mean, we're all trying to really enjoy some semblance of normalcy for people who are working and living and still staying in the city. So you got to keep yourself safe, got to keep yourself sane Sometimes those are a disconnect of what you need to do is stay in versus the desire to just like, good God, I just want like a decent meal. 100%. Now, Satch, you're going to have to excuse our sign language between me and David. My hand up means I'm going to ask a question next because there's a slight delay, I think, from New York. Um, so you were just saying before we went on air that similar to here in Australia and, and our colleagues in Europe, you're so, so busy now compared to, you know, you were busy before, but now it's just gone crazy. That, that's true? Uh, absolutely. I mean, summers for us historically have been relatively busy on the non-surgical arena in our practice. Again, as you mentioned earlier, I'm a plastic surgeon, love to spend my days in the OR, but you know, we do a lot of non-surgical modalities, injecting and several different types of treatments that my uh, clinical team also perform. I've never seen this surgical interest and volume in my life. I mean, everything else, absolutely. We've always had busy August and September's. But surgery is just beyond comprehension. Mm. And it's very interesting because people are finding that they're not traveling. They're not um, going to be able to go anywhere. They're working from home. There's never been a better time for them to have some downtime. Yeah. And they're doing most everything remotely, right? So they're like, well, I don't have to really take time off from work because I'm not going into the office. So if I want that tummy tuck or liposuction or blepharoplasty facelift, whatever that typically you wouldn't be doing in August and September, they're all over it because they've never had this much downtime. So mm. um, it's a very interesting um, pattern that we've never seen before. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because it seems like people to a certain extent don't seem to have as much concern about their financial future as what I thought they would. So they're still spending big money on themselves for like surgery and so on, but seems like um, the uncertainty of what the economy is going to look like and what their financial position may be in sort of, you know, 12 to 18 months time. It seems like maybe people aren't thinking about that as much as they potentially should. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what I'm, what I'm seeing and finding is that I think there's certainly one element of that, but I also think that there's an element of the fact that, for, for certain individuals in a demographic or socioeconomic status, they're just, they wanted to see that there was some element of stability, whether it's their portfolio, whether it's their normal day-to-day -day 
and they're like, okay, I can afford it, but I wanted to press pause to make sure it's safe and make sure everything's okay, fine. For others, they've realized that they still have work and that their industry has been affected, but maybe not to the same level they thought. So they're like, okay, so this is something I want to do or been wanting to do. So I think for those who are financially somewhat sound, it's a very convenient time. And then the others have self-selected out because they're like, I'm just not liquid or this is obviously not a good time because my work and employment is not where it historically was. So Satch, why don't you explain to our listeners um, who you are? Because to me, you're the king of Kybella. You're the man. Uh, and I met you back in 2017 here in Sydney. Um, Alagan flew you over to discuss the launch of Belkyra here in Sydney and obviously Australia. Um, but can you just give people you know, a, a flavor of your scope of practice? Obviously, you're a surgeon as well. And just sort of tell us what happens at Lux Surgery at, at your clinic in Manhattan. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a board-certified plastic surgeon. I, I trained at Johns Hopkins after completing a six-year bachelor MD program, just a little background on my education, and then came to New York City to do an aesthetic plastic surgery fellowship because, you know, at a place like Hopkins, you have incredible exposure to the full gamut of complex reconstructive plastic surgery but probably a little bit uh, less exposed, like most academic programs, to aesthetics. And I knew I wanted to focus my career on high-level aesthetic plastic surgery. So I was very fortunate to get the fellowship at what's considered to be one of the premier programs here in the country at Manhattan Eye or Throat Hospital. So I came to New York's famed Upper East Side to focus and concentrate on aesthetic plastic surgery. And uh, surprise, surprise, fell in love with New York <laughs> and thought that there were some really unique opportunities. And I did the scariest and what felt like the stupidest thing in my life, which was right out of fellowship to hang a shingle and start my own practice um, on Fifth Avenue and go right into <laughs> the belly of the beast. Um, so ignorance is bliss. I you know, opened the practice and uh, routinely would have to call my mother to ask her, to call the office because I didn't know if the phones would ring if they worked Yeah, <laughs> because you know, you leave the ivory tower and all of a sudden you're just another person trying to make it happen. So it was a very humbling experience uh, to basically be 31, 32 years old and open a practice and arguably one of the most competitive markets in the world and to go for it. So anyways, um, we started the practice and look for unique opportunities to grow and to be innovative. Um, they'll tie into Belkyra, Kybella in a little bit, but basically from there, you fast forward. Six years later, we have an incredible team um, here at Lux Surgery. We have our own um, full-fledged clinic with our operating room on site between myself and a handful of surgeons that use my space, my operating room when I'm not. We're doing, you know, four to 500 surgeries a year, which is quite a bit, I think, when you look at that mm. um, amount of volume. And we have um, thousands of patients that get injected and treated non-surgical modalities. We have an entire research division of four full-time equivalents. We have about 11 ongoing pivotal clinical trials that are in the phase two and phase three process dedicated exclusive to aesthetics and our practice. So it's research, education, and clinical excellence are our tenants. And I'm really proud that, you know, close to 15 people now call this home and place to work. 
What sort of stuff are you um, trialing? Keen to see. Have you got some new products that you're going to be uh, launching you want to let, yeah, let yeah, us in absolutely. on? Or you... So definitely some really exciting things on the horizon. Well, first of all, we were doing the, some of the pivotal work with the new CCH drug, Colostridium collagenase histolyticum, or collagenase clostridium histolyticum, rather. So that is going to be, cool. has been now FDA approved as the world's first and only injectable to help get rid of cellulite. So that's a really oh. exciting new um, addition to the aesthetic armamentarium in an injectable yeah. form. It's like the holy grail that trying to get rid of cellulite. It's like uh, you, if, you, if it, you're going to make a, you, you'll be having, you'll be moving your rooms to a palace, I think, <laughs> if that uh, <laughs> if that product does what you say it's going to do. It does need to work well, so we'll uh, let's get ready to let's get ready to look for some real estate. It's perfect. So. Yeah, yeah, we want to be to the where Jake and I want invites to the opening party. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. I wasn't just saying random words. It is called Quo, right? Q-W-O, that, that new That's product. That's right, Quo, exactly. So CCH, branded by Quo, the company is Endo Pharmaceuticals. Um, and so that's a really exciting thing. And we've, we helped them get that FDA approval, which was really, really exciting. Um, new neuromodulators on the horizon that function very differently. So also botulinum toxin um, type A's, but the way that they function, they're Preparation um, also different, so we seem to be seeing a really interesting signal with some new botulinum toxins on the horizon, um, new dermal fillers, and some new technologies. We helped also with like the um, cool tone device with piloting that, um, which was really cool to stimulate you know, the magnetic muscle stimulation. All those different so devices, toxin filler, CCH, and future directions with uh, Kybella as well. Satch, you do realize that you've volunteered yourself for multiple podcasts now, so we can go down all of those avenues. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, man, what, what, what he he walks straight into that, Jack, straight into it. I was trying to give you something <laughs> that would ensure that I get invited back, so I needed to start. I didn't want to end with that. I had to start with lead off with some other things. So you guys would be keen to hopefully bring me back one day. Fair enough. So, Satch, <laughs> the the topic of the day is. I want to call it Belkyra. I know you guys call it uh, Kybella in the States. Now, first off, why are Americans so special that you have to have a special word and everyone else in the world calls it Belkyra? So, yeah. Alternate facts. What's that? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alternative well, facts. I mean, we as, we as Americans, I mean, we always <laughs> want to be special. I mean, you know, we, we need to know. Listen, it's kind of exciting the fact that for once we had an FDA approval before the rest of the world, right? Yeah. Typically, we're the ones who were, you know, late to the party. I mean, you guys and in Europe and everything get all these great fillers and toxins through the regulatory pathway, and we're waiting years later. So for once, we got something first. Uh, but with that said, I think it actually had to do with just the FDA and the name of it. Um, Belkyra may have been very similar to something else or just resonated differently with the FDA, so they insisted on a different name. I think it would have been a lot easier for Kythera than the parent company and naturally for Allergan, the owners of that technology now, to have it named one name, one packaging, one everything. Yeah. Uh, but you can, you can thank the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, <laughs> for that. They wanted us to stand out here in America. So who were Kythera? I mean, obviously, they were a smaller company and Allergan purchased the, the technology and the product. But did, did you know much about them? And how long has the, the product been around for in development? Well, they worked on development for several years up until its FDA approval in 2015. So, I mean, Belkyra itself, or I mean, ATX 
101. Let's flip the difference. No Bell, Kyra, no Kyra. But we'll call it ATX though. <laughs> but basically Bell, Kyra, um, they found out, you know, through some great science from some really smart guys like Adam Rotunda based out of California is a brilliant dermatologist. And among some other colleagues, they figured out that for the longest time, injections to get rid of fat always were thought to be phosphatidylcholine as the active ingredient, PC. And these guys figured out that it was actually the DC, deoxycholic acid, DCA, that's the sort of active ingredient, for lack of a better way, that helps destroy the fat cells. So they looked at different concentrations, and then they were able to extract it and then make a synthetic, non-animal, non-human derived version. So none of the proteins that can cause serum sickness and type 4 hypersensitivity reactions, not like horse or sheep or animal derived, they got it out of a soy plant and pretty much figured out that this is the sort of active molecule to help permanently destroy those fat cells. So the R&D part was a new drug application. So it was hundreds of millions of dollars of research you know, years and multiple pivotal studies throughout several different countries. And in 2015, voila, you get an FDA approval. And it was the first and only drug for that company, Kythera. So what was your early experience like? I mean, obviously, I'm guessing you got hold of the product maybe slightly earlier because you're a key opinion leader for, for one of the companies. But, you know, did you approach it with a bit of trepidation, because it's quite different to to your to Botox and filler, because you're not getting that immediate result. Well, as I mentioned earlier, it was only basically my mom calling the office for an appointment. So <laughs> we needed to we needed to figure out very quickly how to make the world's first and only FDA approved injection to get rid of fat work in the practice if we were going to uh, you know make this thing thrive. So necessity, of course, is the you know, mother of invention. So with that said, we said, okay, Mm -hmm. let's wrap our heads around this as a very strong molecule. So I pulled all of the science that I could, looked at all the data, felt like it was going to be safe. And again, I'm a surgeon. So if I could put a cannula semi-blindly under the skin, if I can put facelift scissors underneath there, I can put this compound, which permanently destroys fat and inject it with a one ml syringe and a 32 gauge needle and I should be able to confidently do that. So, yeah. you know, we, we understood the science and then found the artistry and the aesthetic component to the whole thing. And that was kind of where it landed. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with um, the world we live in now where people want things instantly? And I guess a lot of the time we've trained them to be able to, you know, you stick your, your Botox in, it takes effect within a few days, your fillers immediate. How do you sort of prepare someone mentally, or I wouldn't use the word sell, but recommend um, this treatment for someone when it's not immediate. Do you know what I'm saying? Like even with liposuction, for example, even though you've got bruising and swelling, people you know, can see the difference the next day. Obviously, the swelling will sort of increase in the, after that, but everything's instant now. How do you go about getting across that barrier of, hey, we'll inject this for you now, but you're not going to see results for X period of time? Fundamentally, you've got to help people understand that there's always an opportunity cost. So if you want to avoid surgery, because this has been on your mind forever, your opportunity cost is a little bit of social downtime. It's going to take a few weeks to a few months to get the outcome, and you may have to do it a few times. But if you want to help permanently improve the contour of your face and neck, get rid of your double chin, 
and avoid a scalpel. All I need you to do is be patient. Take it or leave it, right? That's what it really comes down to. For us, the messaging was has always been transparent and honest. I can get you a surgical type outcome, surgery in a syringe. All you have to do is give me some downtime and the fact that you understand that it's not going to happen tomorrow. If you want something that's quicker, let's go to the OR because I'll take care of that for you too as a surgeon. And then the patient's like, oh, well, I don't want to have surgery. Okay, great. Well, then in that case, this is what it's going to take in the year 2020 to get you the outcome you're looking for. That's exactly how I see it. And you know, I'm like, well, you can just lie in my bed for 15 minutes, two or three times, and it's done. That's it. You know, it's it's really not that hard to sell if you if you talk in that in that language. It, the the time thing isn't really an issue for most people. They've lived with their double chin their whole life for for a lot of people. So it's like, oh well, three months. I can kind of hang on and and wait. And I just don't want to go to sleep because it scares me. So I'm not. That's not an option for a lot of people. Right. And, and I think that's where when I've spoken to colleagues who are surgeons who are like, well, why don't you just have them go to your day. I can do that under local anesthetic. I do it in our procedure. We have to do it in an OR, all these things. I'm telling you, I'm not trying to convert a patient who wants surgery (laughs) and convince them to not have surgery. I'm tapping it into an entire different demographic of patients who've been living with their double chin or who've been bothered by it, just not bothered enough to have surgery. And there's a lot more patients like that out there than there are who are interested in submental lipo. So that's, I think, where the unique you know, positioning with it is, is that I have the confidence in the technology, I have the confidence in the treatment, in the outcome. Would you like surgery or would you like an injection? If you want surgery, God bless you. Let's go to the OR and we're going to take care of that in my office, in my OR. If you want an injection, beautiful. One way or another, I'm going to help take care of this problem. What treatment resonates with you? I'm always wary of sort of jumping five steps ahead because we all know what Kybella is or Belkyra. But just for the people who may have never used it or the consumers who've you know never heard of it, can you just bullet point what it is? What's it indicated for? Sort of on label, and and you know quickly how is it done? Sure. So. Belkyra slash Kybella is deoxycholic acid, as I mentioned earlier. This is a bile acid that is found in our entire hepatobiliary tract, right? So when you eat, we're going to keep this since I'm in New York, we're going to keep it as New York. If you ate a slice of New York's finest cheese pizza (laughs) or for dessert had a slice of great New York cheesecake, something with some fatty content, your GI tract, your body is going to understand that there's fat that's gone into the system and your body's going to release this deoxycholic acid to help break down this dietary fat. In this situation, we have a synthetic non-animal, non-human derived version that we can inject that as soon as it hits the fat cells, it permanently disrupts and destroys them. So you're helping get rid of the fat. Um, so that's basically what it is and how it works. Interestingly, for, for those who may not know though, it is what we call a non-specific cytolytic agent. Medical speak for, it actually will destroy whatever tissue it comes into contact with, not just fat. So you do have to be very careful with the product that you don't inject it too superficially into the skin or too deep into the muscle because you'll injure that tissue also. When you stay in the fat, it's very safe and okay. 
Um, basically, once you kill those fat cells or injure them, the body triggers this inflammatory cascade. So all these cells come in, get all, get rid of all that fat, all the dead fat and the debris, and in the process, help build collagen to tighten the skin and make an improvement in the architecture of the skin. So that's basically what it is and how it works. And it's literally, like you said, in a syringe similar to you know, a Botox injection. People may have seen the photos where they put a grid, sort of like a little transfer sticky thing on the neck so you can sort of mark out where you're going to inject. And then you, you normally draw on the jaw to stay away from some of the important nerves that control the sort of the lower lip. Is that your take on it? There's nothing else that you, you would do for the, for the double chin region? Yeah, so exactly right. You mark and draw, assess the area. I assess it very much the same way I do as if I was going to perform liposuction. And after that, we place that grid. That grid is very important because it ensures that we get equal spacing. So we get the medication with an equal distribution. And then it's a very straightforward, elegant injection just into the fat with our tiny needle, the same one we use for our neurotoxin neuromodulators. And um, that's basically it. And then you place some ice on afterwards. There are other elements that can you know, impact uh, the comfort level for the patient. We can talk about that later. A lot of injectors here, and I'm interested to see if it happened in America, they sort of shied away from it, partly because it was new, partly because they heard it destroys tissue, partly because they don't get you know, an immediate result, and partly because it was priced relatively expensive compared to, say, like you said, lipo under local anesthesia. So how did it take off in America, and, and how is it doing now? Now it's been out for about five years. So the challenges that were faced in other countries with what you said are not unique to just Australia, for example. There's going to get a good result, a slight premium to pay for the fact that you are getting a non-surgical treatment um, that gives you a surgical type outcome and is permanent. There was slow adoption. There's a lot of interest, a lot of buzz. The main things that people were trying to wrap their head around were cost and downtime. No one has really ever said that if you use it correctly, it doesn't work. That's a bigger problem. It does work and it is very effective, but it gives you social downtime and it's expensive. So once you navigate those two parameters for your patients, which we, which we have, we've done about 4,000 plus treatments in our practice, I think, which is arguably more than anywhere or anyone in the world. And we figured out how to help physicians to our patients, and they've been very pleased with the outcome. How do you, I was always, I mean, from a consumer's perspective, and so Jake knows the answer to this question as well, but how do you control how much fat you're taking away? Because when you're in the operating theater and you've got a lipo cannula, it's a gradual process of, you know, you're slowly sculpting like you would like a piece of wood or a piece of stone. You know, you sort of see what's coming away as, as you do it. When you're just injecting this product, you're sort of like, okay, well, I'll put it in and Let's hope for the best. Like, let's hope it gets rid of exactly what we want and not too much or not too little. How do you control that like amount of uh, fat reduction or death with the, with the syringe? Think of the like layers of an onion, right? And each mm -hmm. time you layers of that onion, it's a very calculated, gradual process. So injecting is all a function of titrating it. For example, I had a gentleman who I injected just today this is his third treatment cycle. And I'm a big fan of going out all the way on the sides of the neck. For him, that area was very well contoured by the jawline. All he had left was a little post-it stamp right in the middle 
the thickest layer of the onion. So there was no need to treat out on the side because we'd already been satisfied with where we achieved. So it's all in the assessment and in also recognizing that it is a gradual process. So if the area is getting thinner, perfect, and you're already done. It's very difficult to overshoot on your first treatment, if that makes sense. So if you know there's fat there, you can treat it and you can have the confidence that you're not going to just create a cavitation when you use the grid and assess them correctly. And I'm assuming that's related to the technique. So you're putting your needle in at a certain depth and you're obviously delivering a certain dose. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a pretty well-controlled thing. And well, I've certainly never seen someone say, there's too much fat gone, I want it back. So it's, it's never really been a problem for me. Well, I always say that, you know, like I, in the office today, it was, I saw a breast augmentation consult where, you know, the girlfriend and the boyfriend both come in, or the, you know, and she brings her boyfriend in. And she's, you know, looking at sizes and she's like, oh, I'm going to go this big. And he goes, go bigger. And she's like, oh, my God, you're a perv. I knew you like my girlfriend. Her boobs are so much bigger than mine. I hate you. I'm like, oh, geez, I, I got out of the room. Yeah, the opposite happens where she's like, oh, I'm, you know, he's like, go this size. And she's like, I'm going to go a lot bigger. And he's like, what's wrong with you? You're going to be fighting every guy in New York every time you like walk by. Mother and daughter come in for a rhinoplasty consult. She'll say, I don't want my mom. To, I don't want my nose to look like mom's nose. You're like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, there's a problem again. It's just the mom's now like, what's wrong with my nose? There's never been a discussion where someone's like, you know, honey, keep the double chin. It's such a good look on you. You know, I, every Christmas, you've got that turtleneck on. You got all that fat smushed up. Love it, baby. Keep that. <laughs> Male or female, younger, old, it doesn't matter. You can't contour a neck almost enough, right? Like you can't yeah. create enough definition through there. Yeah, I don't think double chins are ever going to be on Vogue. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not sure that one's going to come back. <laughs> we <laughs> never thought big fat sausage lips would be on Vogue, but here they are. Oh, wouldn't that be funny? If like in 20 years' time, we're like sitting down having a scotch, going, "Well, I remember that podcast we did with this dude in New York. We were talking about how ridiculous double chins are, and now everyone's like just rocking the double chin." Exactly. <laughs> Like, hey, did you see that he's no longer the Kybella King, but he's injecting five cc's of Voluma into everyone's neck now? Yeah, it's like the yeah the the Brazilian the Brazilian chin lift or whatever it is. We'll be doing like people would like do what they're doing to their butts. I'll be sticking into their chin. People walking around like looking like Quagmire from Family Guy. That's right. We got to think of we got to think of countries or cities that start with the D for the double chin. It'll be the Dallas double chin instead of the Brazilian <laughs> bottle center. Call it, you know, call it the Denmark double chin. I don't know. We'll have to yeah. think of some good options for uh, naming the double chin. Uh, in yeah. Let's trademark it now. Yeah. 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 Satch, before I forget, um, a lot of people, you know, are scared to go more laterally with their injections. And, you know, we're taught to use the grid very centrally, use the dots, mark out your, your area between the thyroid and so on. How do you do that sort of, is it your own protocol or, or what method are you using? Yeah, it is, it is our own protocol, but something that we're big on sharing with the world. So we, I published a paper in PRS, you know, our, our kind of white journal gold standard for plastic surgery um, publications. So, and it would call it the expanded safe zone. So after doing, you know, hundreds and hundreds and now thousands of treatments with it, it's very safe very effective, but the expanded safe zone effectively is just taking advantage of the anatomical landmarks of the neck and breaking it down into a very digestible classification. So 
you know, we have S1, which is a safe zone one, which is just in the center. You have S2, which then goes from sort of the oral commissure over to the antagonial notch, and then safe zone three, antagonial notch, further posterior to the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid muscle, S4, safe zone four, anterior neck, and so forth. When you see the paper, it's very self-explanatory. But when you employ that treatment, you get full control of the neck and jawline without increasing your adverse events of any marginal mandibular nerve paresis or any intravascular injection or anything, as long as you're subcutaneous. So there's a very straightforward, simple classification system on how to treat that area. And it's on label, actually. You read the label, submental fat goes from the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid muscle all the way over to the contralateral SCM. It's never meant to be just the central area between the oral commissures extended down or the marionettes. Yeah, there was some talk of developing different shaped grids for, for going more laterally. Did you ever hear about that or, or play with that? Yeah, so we did help um, build another grid that went through the regulatory pathway that extends laterally. So if you think of the center part like the fuselage of a plane with the wings, these are just longer wings that can go further out to the side so you can make sure you get more coverage on most faces all the way over to the anterior board of the SCM. So it's, it's several, diff, several more rows and columns of dots in a thin way that goes out further out to the side. Mm. And can you be honest, how many marginal mandibular nerve injuries have you guys had and, and what was your sort of uh, rate of recovery? Like how long did it take? Sure. So in, in 4,000 plus treatments, we've had several. I mean, I think our rate is less than 1%, but 1% of 4,000 is 40. So we probably are anywhere from, you know, in that range of 10 to 20 some odd patients, could be even a few more. I, I don't lose sleep over it because we've had zero patients who've had anything greater than about two and a half weeks of any asymmetry because it's not a direct intraneural hit. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not afraid that I injected through the dermis, through the epidermis. Let's talk about the layers through the epidermis, then through the dermis, then through the sub Q fat, then through the platysma, right? And then into the neural sheet. Yeah. No, that's not happening, right? So you've got a little bit of demyelination of a few fibers. You notice a little bit of asymmetry and then it recovers. So the fat reduction has gone permanently and the outcome's permanent. But the asymmetry in the smile lasts a couple of weeks. No patient has ever not continued treatment, but they were all told, you're not doing your you know, photo shoot for Vogue and expecting to do this under the off chance your smile is asymmetrical. Yes. So just keep that in mind. But it's less than 1% of the time. And just to be clear, the outcome of that injury is actually a slightly raised smile on that side. It's not a droopy smile. So... In some ways, I don't think it's as disfiguring. Obviously, it's not ideal. But I think for a lot of injectors, they think they're going to drop someone's you know, corner of their mouth. But it's actually a slight raise, isn't it? Absolutely. Because the marginal mandibular nerve, which is the fourth branch of cranial nerve number seven, which is our facial nerve, is responsible for lower lip depression. So if you cause a temporary paresis of that nerve, which is responsible for the muscles that depress 
the lower lip. You're going to off, obviously, in fact, then get elevation of that side. So some clinicians would treat the contralateral side with some toxin. Yeah. Except the toxin lasts longer than the paresis. So the patient comes back and they're like, well, now it's crooked because this side's normal, but the side you treated <laughs> for the DAOs or the DLI have dropped. So I'd say leave it alone, just let it run its course. If it happens, it's okay. Yeah. Nothing wrong. I was going to ask, because I've got a, a few clinics here in Australia that we offer, obviously, Belkyra, and we also offer Cool Sculpting. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, both products um, supplied and sold by Allegan. How do you see those technologies sort of working together? Because um, they seem to work on similar principles, which is one is destroying the fat through a chemical process. The other one is destroying it through uh, cryolipolysis. But if you had to choose one or the other, like how are you sort of working out, you know, which indication is better for which patient or is it, do you maybe use both together or like, yeah, I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. So fundamentally for me, I don't cool sculpt faces, right? Let's just kind of talk through that because again, in our practice, or at least what people expect from me as a plastic surgeon, this is a game of millimeters. If I do a rhinoplasty on someone they're coming back a year later and still looking at that one millimeter bump that may have not gotten filed down or, you know, the scar is like the expectation is very high. And with cool sculpting, though, it's a very solid technology. I think its purposes, at least for me, are better founded below the clavicle and not on the face where it's a game of millimeters. The other thing also, at least in, if you're saying con- in conjunction, as people will come up with this all the time, like, oh, we'll use it first to debulk and then come back and use the Belkyra. And that's why. Why? Is it because, I mean, why are you using, so you're using one agent first to debulk and then something else to try to finesse and get rid of it. And when I've asked this over and over again to people who believe in that, they're like, well, it's, it's price. I'm like, right. So for me in aesthetics, like I'm, not, I'm taking that out of the equation. I just want the superior treatment and technology out the gate. So why do I want to use one thing first, knowing that it's not going to get me the full outcome to hopefully save a few dollars for the patient, knowing very well I have to come back and do something different to clean up what's left behind. I can't wrap my head around that treatment or that paradigm. So again, for me, fundamentally, patients get Belkyra on the face and then they can be cool sculpted on other areas on the body. I think a lot of people, at least in my anecdotal experience, have used the cool sculpting for the inverted commas debulking because they're scared to go laterally with the Belkyra. And so they've sort of, you know, had in their mind, well, I can go more laterally, maybe it's a little bit cheaper, and then I'll, you know, use some Belkyra centrally. That that's my experience because not many people are doing Belkyra laterally. Um, so yeah. And that's that's a very fair point. If you're if the concern is I don't know how to safely treat laterally, so we dual sculpt, right? Where you put basically two of the cool minis on and work laterally to the center and so on and so forth. Totally understandable and acceptable. However, there is a very safe, replicatable way to treat laterally with what's going to probably give you the best outcome. Also trigger more of an inflammatory cascade. So at least anecdotally, you get more skin retraction in an area that can be very prone to laxity. Mm. Um, And so I guess fundamentally for me, 
That's why I think Belkyra is better suited for the face. You can cheat up to the jowl a little bit and really contour the jawline. It's not as customizable, obviously, for a device. Not that there's anything wrong with cool sculpting. It works very well. I'm just not fond on the face where it's a game of millimeters. Well, that's actually a really good point because obviously the applicator's got a defined shape and size where, you know, your tagline surgery in a syringe with Belkyra, you can tailor, do what you like, feather, um, adjust the dose, go up, go down, go onto the jowl. It's way more tailorable, I think. And that's where I feel. That's why I prefer it because, again, the face is very unforgiving in that capacity. If you have a little asymmetry or a little pouch left behind the abdomen, you can find a clever way to improve that, and it's at least masked. You can't walk around with these other elements. The other thing also is, you know, it, which can happen with cryolipolysis is you can get PAH, right? Paradoxical adipose hyperplasia, which is a very challenging adverse event to treat. So again, we know that this can happen. Um, there's nothing wrong. You do enough of anything, you're going to get adverse events. But again, that on the face would be very unforgiving and very challenging to treat. So if I have an alternative, um, then that's you know, going to usually be my go-to. Can you just qualify what the PAH is for people who don't know, Stash? Sure. So PAH is paradoxical adipose hyperplasia, which basically means that in through the mechanism of trying to crystallize the fat, <coughs> excuse me, which is what cryolipolysis is, um, we're you know that the whole me- method the whole method excuse me of trying to destroy fat with cryolipolysis is predicated on thermal modulation right we're just trying to freeze the fat to a critical temperature so we don't injure the dermis but get into the fat crystallize it and trigger apoptosis and crystallization and destruction of fat so PAH basically is an inflammatory process where the fat doesn't die and in fact it gets really agitated or angry and gets a lot bigger and very hard and very fibrous. So patients who are afflicted with PAH will come in after a treatment of cryolipolysis and the opposite has occurred where the area is much fuller, Mm. firm, tender to touch, sometimes painful, and the real only option to get rid of it is now surgical management. Or could you put some Belkyra in there? (laughs) So we have treated some areas that have had PAH with Belkyra and gotten a very nice response, but it takes a lot of treatments and a lot of product, and is a very atypical treatment than what you standard do because of the nature of the fat. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, so I, I've always been sort of keen to sort of pin you down and ask this. Like, you have really, really ran with this product. I mean, undisputed, you know, 4,000 treatments and, and growing, you know, I'm sort of seen as maybe a, you know, a leading user of the product here. And I might, might have done a couple of hundred treatments. So how, how did you do it? Like, how are you marketing it? What, why are people sort of drawn to what you're offering? I mean, I think for us, it was just establishing a keen interest and sincerely positioning the product of understanding the treatment process, right? Full transparency. You're going to look like a bullfrog tomorrow. <laughs> but it's okay, right? Plain and simple. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. Just so, you know, just kind of going through that. And I was never afraid to use a lot of product if that's what it took to get a good outcome. And I think because we got out to the gate, not 
trying to just treat that central area. Like literally from the first few patients, I was like, I again, pass a lipo cannula 500 times through this area without being able to see it. Or I put facelift scissors here. Why am I not treating this fat? So very quickly, we got the reputation for getting these really good outcomes, being not afraid to treat laterally, understanding the product and being transparent. And I think that just led to a lot of keen interest in a city like New York, where people trusted us and were like, wow, this is a guy who was focused his energy and efforts and understanding and mastering this technique and treatment. And then we started to publish, right? We shared this information. We didn't just sit in the office and say, oh, it's all mine. I figured it all out. Hmm. No, we got out on the road and taught the world how to treat it. And so again, I think all of that through then social media and so on and so forth just grew the fact that this is a person to go see if you're interested in this treatment. What's your preferred treatment modality? If someone says to you, doc, I've got this pocket of fat, um, are you choosing liposuction or are you choosing Belchiral? It's like if the patient says it's your, your preferred choice, doctor, what are, you, what, what are you going for? So all things being equal, they don't care about downtime. Yep. Yep. They don't care about any of those things. We're going to the OR. Okay. So it's still, so OR is still the gold standard. I think so. And the main reason why is because it's one and done. I can take care of it and I can knock it out. Again, if for me, we want to help patients with Belkyra who are not interested in having surgery. But if yep. they tell me, but, but I'll tell you, it's I should have qualified that a little bit because if you've got someone who comes in who could benefit from just, because this comes up all the time where they've got mm. they're the aesthetic perfectionist, marathon runner, small little pocket, they only need two little two vials. Maybe they need two treatments because their BMI is like 22 and it's just hereditary. Is that someone really worth taking to the OR and putting three small scars on their face? Right. So that's why I was saying it's a it's more the it's more of the assessment. Mm. But if you think about all comers, Americans, slightly elevated BMI, double chin, then you know, liposuction with an energy modality to tighten the skin like Renuvion or J plasma is a gold standard because you're getting, mm. you're getting a one and done, something to tighten the skin and the mechanical extraction of the fat. Um, for those people who maybe haven't used Belkara, there's always a worry for those people that they think they're going to get a floppy sort of skin when the fat has gone. But we know with the Belkara, you get this inflammatory cascade and actually you get skin tightening. In, in your experience, how long does that process develop for? Because we think it's at least six months here in Australia. I would agree with that. I think that process of inflammation and continued retraction goes on for at least six months up to even nine. Because remember, this is creating liquefactive necrosis at the end of the day. It's a chemical burn. It's a chemical injury. So if you were thinking about surgery, surgery takes six months to a year to get the final outcome. I think it's the same for Belkyra. You may get a nice visual change earlier on, but plain and simple, I tell my parent patients that if you're looking for the outcome or the final outcome of this treatment, and we've done your third session, don't plan on seeing that final result till six months to nine, six to nine months. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I've had the treatment myself and you know, you kind of forget what it looked like and then you compare a year later and you're like, huh, I, th I think it's even better now. So it's kind of a magical treatment, really. And it, it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, one of the other sort of difficulties when Belcara launched was the fear factor of the pain. It, it you know, without uh-huh. any analgesia and, and any sort of strategy, it's it's unbelievably uncomfortable. And I can say because I I did one side of my neck with local and the other side without just to see what all the fuss was about. I can tell you, I'd never want to put one of my patients through without local. So, you know, I, I spoke to you in person when you came to Australia, and you you kindly shared your. Um, local anesthetic sort of protocol. Can you just explain to people what you do? There's no question that that initial stinging and burning, which doesn't last very long, is and can be uncomfortable. First of all, interestingly, there's two formulations of Belkyra that are out there. There's a with BA, benzyl alcohol, and a non-BA formulation, non-benzyl alcohol, because some countries don't allow for a preservative of benzyl alcohol in any saline or anything. They just don't allow it. So benzyl alcohol is a very very potent analgesic as well. So if you have the BA formulation, which is Kybella, then you know that it isn't going to burn as much as the non-BA formulation. With that said, in our practice, every patient gets pre-treated with lidocaine mixed with epinephrine slash adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because seven to 10 minutes of that, just sitting in the tissue, takes the edge off of the entire treatment. Patients don't have any burning, stinging, anything. It's such a better experience and leads to patient retention, you know, patient compliance, them talking about their experience with people. So imagine again, if like, if you inject Jane Doe, and she's at dinner that night with her friends or people come over and like, oh, so you look like a disaster right now. You're like, great, thanks. I've got my like ice pack on, double chin in full swing, you know, looking awful, so to speak, which is completely fine and normal. And the friends are like, oh, so what'd you do? Like, well, I want to get rid of my double chin. So I got these injections. Oh, got it. Okay. So, uh, well, tell me about it because it looks pretty bad right now. Well, it's going to get worse tomorrow morning and then it's going to get better. Huh. Okay. Did you, does it expensive? Uh, yeah, kind of. Okay. Does it hurt? Yeah. Burnt like crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Sign me up. Right. (laughs) But who's going to sign up for that? Right. But if the experience is, well, it didn't really hurt. He injected something, you know, all of a sudden, what is the experience that you're cultivating for the patient? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. People don't, yeah. Pain and discomfort seems to be more painful than sometimes the, the pain of the monetary hit. They just want to be able to have an experience that's, uh, you know, tolerable. And especially if you need to do multiple treatments. I mean, I think it's like you had the first treatment, you're like, okay, uh, okay, I powered through it. Okay, but God, I don't think I could do that again. You know, so if it gets to that, you know, that mental scar (laughs) is still there for people. Absolutely. People will have an aversion to that. Like when we inject with local, again, even the gentleman who I was treating today with round three, he's like, all right, let's get through that part. 10 seconds of bee stings and I'm done. And that's the, and they're like, oh, that's it. Now I'm done, right? That's yeah. the worth of the pain versus minutes and minutes and minutes of stinging, burning, feeling every needle, more bruising. Like it's just such a terrible experience. Do you ever use um, like say like uh, nitrous or any sort of, uh, you know, sedative, you know, whether a bit, of, a bit of midaz or you give them a bit of gas or something or you're just straight... So Jake's Jake's cringing, going no. <laughs> I was just curious if you've got if you've got an OR there and you've got access to all that stuff. I'm just curious. Yeah, no, so like things like there's like Pronox in the US, yeah. which gives you like that 50-50 blend. Um, I think I mean there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a little 
you know, disinhibition and using Pronox. We, we don't because again, I think altogether it's going to add a lot more downtime to mm. the entire procedure where now patients are going to be in the office a lot longer and so on and so forth, as opposed to just a little bit of local anesthetic. I do have patients in my practice because we have an OR who insist on being sedated for all of their toxin filler. (laughs) (laughs) See, Jake, it wasn't such a stupid question. There you go. Listen, it's it's New York City, guys. I mean, you know, it's uh, pandering to the New Yorkers. I'm sorry. So we have patients that, that book and they schedule my anesthesiologist comes in, gives them a little gas as well. They do, do their injectables and everything they want to, because they just want to, you know, wake up and be done with it and not, not know. So they do a little, uh, uh-huh. a slight propofol and, um, yeah. And that's, yeah. that's totally fine for them because they just don't want to feel or remember anything. They got a little retrograde amnesia and that's it. Uh, yeah. Joking aside, I think, I, yeah, I think if you've got the facility and an anesthetist, why not? But you know, for most, your average injector, they're, they're in a room on their own. You don't want to add any more complications, risk, sedatives, driving home, killing themselves. All of that kind of stuff is completely unnecessary. But um, I want to just sort of drill down onto the anesthesia because there's some people who are mixing local mm-hmm. directly into the Belchiro vial, you know, just a small amount. That does seem to work. I've, I've tried it just, you know, as an experiment. Um, there are other people saying, well, you know, if you have to walk over the area and do little injections of local like you taught me, then doesn't that sting? Because you've got a needle and the local stings as well. So what's the point? And so then they've tried to get clever and use it with a cannula and sort of, you know, fan through some local with a cannula. Like, why did you choose that method particularly? Well, I use, I use the serial needle puncture and small bolus technique for smaller areas. If I have a patient who requires you know, a full 50 dots or, you know, five vial treatment, I'll often do more of a retrograde threading or cannula technique because from two points laterally and one in the submental crease, you can effectively get the whole neck nice and numb yeah. with anywhere from five to six cc's, maybe seven cc's of local through those three pinches and yeah. then you're done, right? So that's, I think, completely appropriate. So yeah. I do my injection based on that. For, for those who are saying, oh, well, you're going to feel those things and burning, you can get a nice block and, you know, in, by injecting maybe lateral in the neck two, central in the middle two or three dots or three areas, and then laterally and easily get in a handful of CCs, which takes care of the entire injection anyways. So you don't need to inject someone 20 or 30 times to get them numb. That would defeat the purpose. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Fair enough. Well, I don't mix it in, by the way. I, I don't mix it in for a couple of reasons. Number one, now it's all working simultaneously, right? The, uh, the idea is to get it numb beforehand. And the local doesn't work faster than the Belkyra. So you're going to maybe blunt the discomfort but you're not really going to effectively decrease it too much. Yeah. Second of all, depending on how much you're mixing in, you're now, now altering the dilution and the injection, so you're not going to get equal distribution of the medication. Agreed. So that also is an important element and why I don't like to mix it in. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, 
for those injectors who, you know, maybe have got some experience and they're getting nice results, but they've never done an off-label treatment, um, you've sort of really pioneered, you know, using Belkyra in other parts of the body. Which, which parts have you treated? I think we should decide which treatment, what parts have we not treated? <laughs> Probably more appropriate. I mean, head to toe, we treat jowls, obviously submentum, which is on label. Um, if we're working, talking anteriorly first, bra fat, male chest, at total abdomen, mons pubis, periumbilical, um, inner thighs, outer thighs, anterior thigh, knee, calf and ankle, posteriorly then back superior to inferior, the uh, posterior bra fat, love handles and flanks, um, dimples of venus, the banana roll. So basically everything other than the uh, periorbital fat and the um, buckle fat pad. What is the what are the dimples of Venus? <laughs> sounds like it sounds like a superhero. Well, <laughs> if you if you gotta ask, you ain't ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, the the dimples of Venus are kind of the posterior superior iliac crest. So you'll see in some women, if they're wearing something that's a little bit lower rise, those two kind of dimples on the posterior portion. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. yeah that shows you where to put, it just shows you where to put the tattoo, right? Just in between those two spots. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not touching that one. <laughs> but yes, those are, they can be useful anatomic landmarks, correct? Yes. What about, um, there's two other areas. People have asked me occasionally, the buffalo hump on the back of the neck. Oh, yeah. Yep. And also, I don't know if you've had in your list, obviously the upper arm. I've seen you do upper arm quite a bit. I did not mention the arms. Uh, forgive me. Yep, arms are very, uh, you know, basically from the elbow up to the deltoid or the acromion of the, of the scapula. That whole region is fair game and works well. Um for the, uh, you know, colloquial buffalo hump or dorsal cervical fat pad, that is a very, very fibrous region. And even with liposuction is a very big challenge. I've treated a few of them, seen some improvement, but it's not my go-to. Um, also, again, when you think about what is the cause of that, you know, it's often secondary to steroids. So it's iatrogenic. So if a patient received it because of steroids, are they still on the steroids? That's going to decrease their ability to heal as well and get the dermal neocollagenesis if they're on systemic steroids. Retroviral, uh, HIV retroviral medication can induce that as well. So there's often different reasons for why people have a prominent dorsal cervical fat pad. So I think it's really important to, sh to iron those out first. But I, for me, lipo is the gold standard there. I can't get a great outcome in that fat pad. It's probably, um, you know... Uh good to mention that some of those things like the the buffalo hump they're often lipomas rather than just you know a bit of diffuse fat so sometimes it might be prudent to actually excise it and send it for a biopsy do you, do you agree with that or not yeah, heaven forbid we ever use a scalpel anymore <laughs> <laughs> fair enough now I just, I just thought you know in case anyone was tempted to just stick belkyra in any old lump you should probably yeah. actually you know, assess that that isn't something nasty or something unusual rather than just fat. A hundred percent. You, you're, you couldn't be more correct. I think, you know, there's prudent times to get an ultrasound, 
get some advanced imaging, make sure you know the consistency and what it is that's going on. But I think the biggest tenet is if you're not comfortable dealing with the complication that you may potentially create, then you probably shouldn't be doing the treatment. Yeah. Right. Fair enough. um, I think that's important. Yeah. And, you know, when I started doing the anterior and posterior bra fat, I sort of made a point of doing a bit of a breast history because, you know, did breast surgery previously and just make sure that it's not lymph nodes or something else. So, yeah, I think that's Mm -hmm. just worth sort of slipping in as well. Um, So which is the most common off-label area that you're doing? Is it jowl? Yeah, I'd say so. Jowl is probably the most, yeah, common area that we treat. And, you know, there's a lot of people who submitted questions sort of really interested in the jowl because, you know, it's on the face, it's, it sits more with facial aesthetics than maybe off-label body areas. What, what's your protocol? I know you've published a paper in PRS again for your landmarks, but, you know, for the people who obviously can't see what we're talking about, can you just describe where the jowl is on the face and, and how much bell curry you might typically use? Sure. I mean, if we were trying to just kind of isolate it, it's, you know, drew a line from the oral commissure down to the pre-jowl sulcus, and then a line that's kind of curved from the lateral canthus to the antagonial notch. That's just going to start to give you a central area. And then if you draw a line from the sulcus mentalis, or the central portion of the the labial mental sulcus to the ear lobule, that pretty much consolidates to the inferior jowl fat pad. So there's an inferior and a superior jaw fat pad, and that inferior jaw fat pad is what we're typically going after. Um, and it's it's great, so safe place to treat. However, the branches of the marginal mandibular nerve arborize and become a little bit more superficial there. So I think you one has to be prepared if injecting there to kind of do some hand-holding through the fact that you may increase some marginal mandibular nerve uh, paresis. Yeah. Mm. I was going to ask, like, how do you treat an overcorrection? So if you've like got an error, I know you're saying it's hard to overshoot, um, but I guess in the rare instance where maybe someone who's not as an experienced uh, injector as yourself, or you just get one of those rare situations where you've gone, oh, that's uh, left a bit of a divot there. Are you, how, how do you sort of treat that? Are you sort of fat grafting or like, how, how do you sort of un- unscrew that? <laughs> yeah. So I think depending on the area, Fat, I love I love micro fat grafting when nece- when important when I guess necessary um, in an area like that I don't think micro fat grafting is going to be the best option primarily because you're not going to have a lot of control so now you don't want to overcorrect because if you're going to do fat grafting now you've got to harvest the fat from somewhere else so what started as an injectable for not having surgery turns into a minor puncture somewhere else harvesting fat then processing that, now injecting the fat, overcorrecting because you know some of it's going to absorb. Then what if too much absorbs? So now you have to go back and do another round. What if not enough absorbs? So now you've got to fill there. So now you've got to inject Belkyra again to get rid of it. <laughs> patient is going to freak out, right? Like fundamentally, that's just not going to be a calculated way. So I think using biostimulatory agents like a sculpture aesthetic could be a great way to that way, ensure that the patient doesn't have to come back for HAs every year or nine months or 12 months in perpetuity. You can say, okay, we're going to use a little bit of a biostimulatory agent. To- I've got an unstable connection. I have no idea why. I'm sorry. Well, it's probably better you didn't hear David's color commentary about the uh, face you were making when it froze. It's yeah. Not good for morale. You looked like you had a stroke. Yeah, it wasn't good. Luckily, I didn't pick my nose. Or- yeah. <laughs> that could have been a bad one to get stuck with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, going back to the jowl, so, you know, again, everyone's fear is the nerve. So, you know, I like one of the really practical things in your papers. You just said, you know, literally pinch it, control it, inject a, a, a sensible level, because, you know, the, the nerve is deep to the muscle, right? So right. as long as you're, you're in the fat, there's no extra risk. Correct. I mean, those, you know, the, well, the nerve at that point is, inter, is terminally innervating those neuromuscular and the neuromuscular junction or that motor nerve end plate. So at that point, you're getting the terminal fibers. So they might be a little bit more superficial, uh, closer to the muscle, but nonetheless, again, just stay, you know, four to six millimeters deep to the epidermis and you're yeah. going to stay in that fat. And again, remember the fact that this fat is like layers of an onion and you're yeah. just going to inject one layer at a time. And I guess from your experience, you're probably the only person who can really answer this. What areas of the body seem to really respond well? And are there any that don't respond as well? I think you've already alluded to the fibrous fat. So I was wondering whether the lateral thigh might not be the greatest area. So interestingly, the lateral thigh, that sort of saddlebag area, has responded exceedingly well. Although we recognize that that's going to be just a fat pad over the TFL, the tensor fascia lata, the iliotibial band anatomically, that fat does respond exceedingly well to that region. The fat that I found that doesn't is basically posteriorly. I mm. don't think flanks and love handles respond particularly well, and I don't think that upper back bra fat responds particularly well either. Um, so those are probably the main areas. The abdomen, the chest, periumbilical, mons, pubis, all of that seems to respond to kind of that ventral fat, softer, um, larger adipocytes. Those seem to respond quite well. I don't really do calf and ankle that much anymore, too much dependent edema, and it just takes forever to see the outcome. It's kind of like calf and ankle lipo also. And there's some really important innervation and, and vasculature there. So I've kind of just stuck with, um, you know, liposuction for those regions. Yeah, I mean, that was my question. And, you know, w which areas do you have to be more careful of? And I was going to say ankle because you've got your, you know, your superficial nerves, et cetera. Whereas, you know, somewhere like the abdomen, as long as you're in the fat, you could pretty much go anywhere. Yeah, it's, very, it's much more forgiving and tolerable there. Yeah, calf and ankle, you have to be really careful. Inner thigh, you have to be very careful also because I've had cases referred to me where people have either miscalculated how poor that skin quality is. So folks that have had a lot of stretch marks, very thin skin there gets injected and ends up leading to ulceration, dermalacrosis right. because they're way too superficial. Did have a question in relation to products such as LipoDissolve, which have been around for a really long time. I mean, I remember hearing about LipoDissolve probably 15 plus years ago. Um, what's the difference between um, what we've got today known as Belkyra or Kybella and the old school um, LipoDissolve concoctions that you, people used to get hold of and treat? Yeah, so LipoDissolve is PCDC. It's phosphatidylcholine and deoxycholic acids. Kind of going back to um, mm. what we were talking about before, PC actually ends up functioning almost like a detergent. So it doesn't increase your stability of the compound. It has no real impact on the actual fat itself other than just attenuating the response. So it's not synthetic. It's not non-animal, non-human derived. And fundamentally, it's just not 
the correct medication and compound to optimize destroying the fat. So mm. those are probably the main things. Okay. Do you guys have compounding pharmacies in, in the various states or New York? Is, is that something available to you guys? Uh, yes, there, there are. Because here in Australia, you know, because lipodissolve had been around for, you know, 15, 20 years, and then we got this newcomer, I think a lot of people were like, well, you know, I'm just going to stick to what, what I was using before because it's cheaper and I kind of got okay results. But um, my issue with it, that because it hasn't been trialed, it could be different ingredients, you know, different compounding pharmacies, different concentrations, etc. You never actually know what you're getting. Uh, I, I've, I've never used it myself, but I don't like the, the sort of the idea that you're going to offer something to a patient and not really know what it does. Whereas with Belkari, you know exactly what it does. Right. And, and you said a very important thing, which is those individuals are positioning it purely based on financials. Yes. Right. Not every treatment we do has to be cheap. <laughs> this is elective. It's, it is, you pay a premium for an outcome and you get what you pay for. So, you you know, I think anyone who I've never seen anyone say, wow, my lipo dissolve uh, outcomes are superior to what you're getting with (laughs) Belkyra. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so you've been like, you you were saying earlier, I'm just going to stick with, and I I didn't want to interrupt you, but that philosophy is I'm just going to stick, not that you're doing that, but that thought process is, I'm just going to stick with, yeah, that's really working. That's not really working that well, but it's really cheap. Correct. Like, uh, yeah. How's that working out for your business model and your patient <laughs> satisfaction? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I'm like, it's not my problem that something's expensive. It, that's the patient choice. I, I don't need to feel guilty about that. You know, just the same as if I want to offer Botox or a certain type of filler, the price is the price. I, I don't sort of go for a cheaper option because... It gets more people in the door. That's not how it works. Right. I mean, a, a luxury goods brand doesn't apologize for the cost of the products that they position to you. They apologize if those expensive products don't perform and you don't get what you pay for or expect. Yeah. So you can continue to take a selfie with a double chin in front of the Sydney Opera House. That's okay. <laughs> That's your prerogative. Or you can pony up what it takes to pay for a treatment to get rid of it and take one with a cleaner jawline. It's the decision's yours. It's, this isn't a life-saving cardiac bypass. Yeah. Fair, fair. Well, some, fair. Pe- some people would, would argue that it's uh, more important because um, we live in this world now where looks trump everything. I mean, you'll see people go out and drink and take drugs on the weekend and then Monday they're coming in for their, uh, you know, for their cosmetic injectable treatments because you've got to look good. <laughs> right. Exactly. Forget forget the stress that that you know it puts on the heart and everything else. It's like yeah. you it's well, we live in an immediate gratification. Yeah. Well, it, it tacks into your question earlier, which is how do you get people to sign up for a treatment where they're not going where yeah. they the immediate period are gonna look worse before they look better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 definitely it's definitely um a bit of an issue the way that people think about things these days. You know, we we're always happy to you know, get the, you know, enjoy ourselves now but, and not worry about the consequences later. It's sort of, yeah, it all feeds into that instant gratification and the here and now and not sort of thinking about consequences of things a bit later on. But yeah, that's a, a chat for a, a philosophical chat for another time probably, but <laughs> yes. Right. 
Just to touch on, we've sort of covered some of them already, but the adverse events that I guess are possible. Um, we mentioned, you know, shape and, and potentially overtreating, which I think is kind of rare, to be honest. Um, allergies, I think you said, is pretty much not going to happen because it's a non-human derived, non-animal derived product. What about um, necrosis? That's something that I've seen a few case reports of. Um, I've also was referred one from Melbourne and Luckily, I could say, well, I don't live in Melbourne. Give it to Professor Greg Goodman, and, and he looked after it. But <laughs> what, 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 what have you seen uh, that's kind of maybe more serious than some of the average um, adverse events? Yeah, so I, I do have the advantage. I don't know if you call it the fortune, or I, I don't think it's a misfortune of, of being the adverse event specialist here in the U.S. from Allergan. So we get calls about some complex problems and issues. Um, and I think they're, they're, they're really challenging ish problems at times. So one of them was someone saw on Instagram us doing an upper extremity injection, and then they went ahead and did the, you know, treated the arms very, uh, you know, unaware of the anatomy near the elbow and demyelinated the patient's ulnar nerve. Oh my God. So now the person has an ulnar nerve palsy and has difficulty with sensation and motion through their small and ring finger for a significant amount of time. You can imagine what the impact is if you're somebody that relies on typing for work and you went and had an elective procedure to make your arms look better and now you can't move or feel a few of your fingers. That's yeah. a big problem, right? So understanding anatomy is very important. Ulceration and dermal necrosis is a very real thing. Um, I've had several cases sent to me or also helped several uh, clinicians navigate those if their patients weren't able to come to New York or, you know, just kind of talking them through the wound healing pathway and caring for the areas. But again, injection technique is, is the, the right answer. And tell the patient, or tell the staff member or, or the individual that's created this every time, do not stop treating patients because of this. If you do something enough, you're bound to get a complication. The question is, do you know how to manage that adverse event when it occurs? Yeah. So don't blame the drug. It's your own hands, but you'll fix it and you'll get better at it the next time. Um, but it's a very real adverse event. Um, there's been some instances of intravascular injury, um, which leads to some distal seating and injuries. Um, so I think that's a very important thing to understand. Um, and then finally, and this may, this may sound like, how could this ever possibly happen? But on more than one instance, I've gotten a call about the situation where the person gets their toxin and their Belkyra confused when they're doing multiple treatments. Oh, my goodness. And so they've injected the Belkyra where they were planning on injecting the neuromodulator. Wow. Oh, my God. So, and it seems like, oh, my God, how could that happen? But it's happened to more than one esteemed colleague um, or unexperienced individual because plain and simple, you know, their assistant prepped the product. They thought they put the syringes in the right location. They handed them the wrong syringe. They're embarrassed to say something because they know it's thousands of dollars and how are you going to figure out all sorts of things run through people's mind and they've done that. Wow. So that's um, yeah. I've heard of that being done with um, the injections people use for um, leg veins. The hypertonic oh, is a hypertonic saline. I've seen, I've heard that being used uh, in mixed up with Botox rather than the normal saline. 
<laughs> yeah, that didn't go too well either. Right. I mean, these things happen. Yeah. So when you're asking, yeah. So in our practice, best practices are they we do one treatment at a time. We do not draw up multiple things. Like I don't want them to drop the Belkyra and the toxin at the same time. Like all those different things are just done stepwise yeah. to prevent these from happening. Absolutely. Yeah. Why don't you just use a different syringe? I do. And then you don't have that problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you've <laughs> done a good job of thinking through that. But again, if you a, are a novice injector who, like you said earlier, works alone, who's trying to be time efficient to all those things. Like I said, because again, the calls that I get are, oh my God, what am I going to do? And how did this happen? I'm like, well, you, you tell me how it happened. Let's talk through it. Yeah. And, or it's been, you know, people who have several assistants and someone preps for them and handed them the wrong thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That can happen. Sure. That's, that's mental. I never thought about that, but that's, that's quite scary. So what was the consequences on the forehead? Uh, I mean, they did get some lipoatrophy of the forehead, you know, thinned out the area and, um, you know, they, they had some slight volume loss in that region. Part of the thing is that there wasn't too much of a negative outcome because of the fact that, you know, they were, they were doing very small aliquots yes. in the way that they process, prepare their products. So they were very fortunate, but it's a very uncomfortable patient Jeez. experience. If you can, yeah. we'd be like, wow, that's the most painful Botox I've ever had. My God, <laughs> <laughs> what's going on? Yeah. Be horrendous, be almost intolerable. I would have, that'd be crazy. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. This Belkyra in the neck. This is fine. There's no bee sting at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, in terms of like non-responders, we do hear, you know, every now and again, someone will report that patient hasn't responded or patient thinks haven't got a result. Like what, what are your sort of thoughts on, on that? I guess that sort of anecdotal sort of evidence. Yeah, there's, there's a small percentage of patients who just don't seem to respond well. I think there's a few things that play into that. One could be, did you actually treat that? Because I've seen people inject and they're hubbing their needle and like right past the fat, blowing past it. So I'm like, all right, so there's injection technique that could fall into it. Second of all, did you use requisite amount of drug? Third thing is, did you do enough treatments? Fourth thing, did you give it enough time to see an appropriate change? And fifth, kind of what is their wound healing like? Um, you know, and, and are they someone who responds? Because you know, we do lipo on patients and they could come back indurated. They don't look like they've changed much and it goes on for months and months. So I do think that there is going to be patient elements, but there are some very practical things that people sometimes don't do correctly, which can also lead to non-responders or, or slow responders. Um, so those are kind of the main elements that I walk through if someone seems like they're not responding well. I think just to add in, and this is probably the key to all of it, is the patient selection, right? So a lot of people mm -hmm. will go, oh, I've got a double chin and you look at them and they've just got a floppy piece of skin with no fat or you get them to push their tongue to the roof of their mouth and they've got a big digastric muscle and no fat. So I, I think fat pad and all these things. Really. Yeah. So I think um, some of that plays into it. I, I know one person who I didn't treat myself. He had five treatments, including on stage at the Allegan launch and just nothing happened. So, mm -hmm. you know, you do occasionally find these people where nothing works. And I guess that's just the way it is, right? Yeah. 
Now, just to wrap this up, because I know it's like super late in New York, we've just got a couple of listener questions and then you can go to bed search. <laughs> um, so yeah. Kath Porter, I don't know if you know Kath, she's one of our trainers here in Australia. She was asking, sure. for areas as big as the abdomen, is there a, a, a finite amount of vial or vials that you can use that are safe? Or can you just treat the whole body? Yeah, so I mean, look, on label, you shouldn't exceed five vials in a single session. There's good um, safety data that even has been studied up to 10 vials in a single session. Um, anyone who's seen some of my talks or has seen some of the stuff we've done on Instagram knows that we've probably done a factor of 10 of that easily, <laughs> uh, where we've done, you know, like, a ridiculous amount in a single session, you know, looking at 80, 90, 100 vials. I don't do as much of that large volume anymore, primarily because, you know, all I need is one person to have a major adverse event or some type of systemic issue that we're just not aware of in that high of a dose yeah. where it maybe mobilizes too much intravascular fat or creates too much inflammation and now that's a big problem and something that hasn't been studied so i got i tell you i i think it's really prudent if anything to scale back to things that you can hang your hat on safety is it's great to push the envelope but i don't want to ever be known as a you know charlatan or a, or a cowboy or being cavalier with a treatment uh, we push the envelope of what's safe or of what's treatable and that was okay but I think in general, it's appropriate to kind of scale back and stay within something that you could, you know, hang your hat on that's got science behind it. And I don't just say that lightly. I really mean it, truly. I was going to say also just the practicalities of doing such big treatments. I mean, you're there just drawing up hundreds of vials. It just becomes labor intensive, boring, time consuming. And, it, you know, if you're a plastic surgeon, your time is, you know, money, I guess. Yeah, but we've got a good setup for that. There's there's good ways to make that a very efficient process that may be beyond the scope of like, you know, it would be part of a discussion or kind of talking about because we, we lecture on that from time to time as well. Because I do very large volume sculpture injections where I'm doing 30 or 40 vials and people find that to be very labor intensive. Um, there are ways to do that either individually or to, you know, have your team involved to make it a very streamlined process when you've got hundreds of syringes worth of product and how to make that more efficient, distilling it down to larger syringes and just doing quick transfers, you know, having your team set up for it. You can still make that a very, very straightforward process that financially makes sense for you. And that doesn't make you want to like, you know, never do it again because you've chosen to go large volume. You really want to make sure that that patient turns up and hasn't double booked for Pilates or something when you've made 30 vials of sculpture. <laughs> um, one other question from Dr. Sarah Hart. She's one of our trainers in uh, New Zealand for Elegant. Yeah, I know. Um, how, do you have any specific tips on what, what you would consider inappropriate or appropriate tissue laxity? Um, you know, because some people have got a bit of minor laxity. It doesn't look like the greatest skin, but you know, at, at what point do you say, I'm sorry, you're not a good candidate? I mean, for me, it's, it's really about like a good pinch test. You know, in, in plastic surgery, we often do what we call a snapback test of the lower eyelid where you want to look at lower eyelid integrity. So you'll pinch it, have them blink their eye and see 
how long it takes for the skin to snap back. So I've done a modification and think of kind of the areas that I'm treating with the snap back test. I mean, if you're pinching on someone's neck and you pull and it just sits there and it like takes, a, you know, it, it literally doesn't just recoil. All right. That's something to like think about, right? It's sort of like um, the general surgery days when you're on the service and you like have an abdomen open and you see the peristalsis of the gut, just this like slow moving. It's the same thing with the neck. Like you pinch it, let go. And it just sits there and eventually comes back and they got to like flop it back up. All right, we've got a problem here. This is not a neck to treat. So I think we identify what's very crepe-like, thin. If you already have skeletonized platysmal bands and someone who just doesn't have the laxity, if you're mobilizing laterally, pulling up towards the earlobe and you see pleats and pleats of skin, come on, we know what the right answer is. We need a scalpel and I need some facelift scissors. Let's go for it. Fair enough. Um, and then she was also asking, I don't know if this is the same in the States, but there's a bit of a general trend that plastic surgeons aren't maybe being as aggressive with their submental liposuction. They, they want to leave a little bit of fat there, maybe just for the, I guess, the tissue integrity when you get older. So is that the same in the States or are, you, are people asking for that really chiseled cut look? Yeah, I mean, I think your end point of liposuction should always be a, a good pinch test where you have, again, good dermal integrity and you're not skeletonizing the fat. You know, even if it's on the abdomen, um, you're not, I'm not trying to go there and take out every last droplet and leave the patient with this paper-thin skin. Yeah. So your pinch test needs to be a good you know, centimeter, centimeter and a half. We can roll that skin. It's got good integrity. But again... I often am pairing most of my liposuction with J-plasma, with Renuvion, which is helium-based plasma for the tightening, because I just find it to be the most effective and straightforward and streamlined way to get good retraction yeah. and good tightening. So I have the benefit of not having to take every last drop out. I'm not using lasers and creating too much heat from that capacity. And the Renuvion heat is a very short-lived burst which gets me the retraction I need. So, Perfect. Well, that is a great way to wrap things up. I can see you're yawning and tired. So we really appreciate you staying up uh, and linking up no, with us you. on Zoom search. Um, yeah, you've been a bit of a hero oh, of mine. Belkar is my baby, <laughs> but you're the king of Kybella. So thank you for all of your knowledge and wisdom. And we're definitely going to try and get you back for a, a Quo podcast once you've got a bit more experience with that. No, it sounds great. I am... Uh, Really appreciative and grateful to be talking to both of you guys. You're at the uh, you know pinnacle of both of your respective, whether you're entrepreneurial or also Jake as a uh, renowned and well-known aesthetic provider. So congratulations to both of you on your tremendous success. And I'm honored that you would uh, want to have me on your uh, podcast. So thank you. And I hope to speak to you guys soon again. Oh, uh, awesome. That was a bit of a wrap. Make sure you transfer that that money to uh that you <laughs> promise for that thank you. <laughs> a little plug there thank you <laughs> thank you buddy uh, oh how do people get in touch with you like on, on instagram and just remind us if people want to reach out because we've got listeners all over the world now so if they want to come and have a the kybella experience with dr satch how do they how do they do it yeah so we've got i mean our handles at lux surgery l-u-x-u-r-g-e-r-y um and yeah it's pretty easy to get a hold of us through our DMs, and then of course, uh, through our website alone, we also have form fills which come to our team. So whatever we can do to help, we're always happy to connect with like-minded colleagues from around the globe. 
Awesome. I highly recommend following what Satch is up to. It's always cutting edge, uh, always doing crazy trials, leading the way. And uh, yeah, you're a hero. Well done, mate. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Take care. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.